I don't treat it like a job, but really I treat it like a life. And what is the difference between like a career in poetry and a life in poetry? And like, I want a life in poetry. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with poet and podcaster Ada Limone, author of The Hurting Kind, a collection not unlike her previous collections, which is to say it's a book of poetry that centers the heart and the non-human or the more than human. The Hurting Kind, though, feels also like a departure, a book of reflections, of looking backwards and inwards, as much as one of observation, a book of the present, of the poet's current self and surroundings. Ada Limone is the author of six books of poetry, including The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. Limone is also the host of the critically acclaimed poetry podcast, The Slowdown. Ada, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. On your website, in big letters, you claim that poetry is elemental, necessary, and deeply human. Mm. Will you explain that statement? Why is poetry elemental and necessary? Why is poetry deeply human? There's a couple reasons why I believe that. And primarily, it's because for me, poetry is one of the only art forms that has breath built right into it, in its line breaks, in its sejuras, in its stanza breaks. It's meant to make us breathe. <laughs> and I think we don't do that enough. So I think it's really important to remember that poetry is is meant to distill something, to put the pause on the rush of life and suddenly become aware of the moment, the present moment, when you're reading it, when you're listening to it, when you're feeling it move through the body. And I also think that poetry is a place that makes room and makes space for all of the different spectrum of human emotions that we have moving through us. And I feel like it's so often that we think we need a summing up, we need a sound bite that somehow defines us. And poetry doesn't allow for that. Poetry instead really embraces the mess, the spectrum, the... Uh, entirety of the human experience. Because of that, I think it's really important to hold on to it, especially now when so many people want clear answers and advice and there's some sort of push towards a, a wisdom. And as wonderful as all those things are, uh, I think sometimes we're pushing towards a wisdom when we don't have one. And we don't have wisdom, we're pushing towards an answer when we don't have an answer. So I think that's really important with poetry is that we're making sure that it remains a space for the whole human experience, all the ups and downs, how we can hold both beauty and grief in the same place. And yet your own poetry is often in admiration or in respect of the more than human, whether that be the flora and the fauna or ghosts or memories that sort of act like hauntings. And I'm wondering how you view the relationship between 
you, the poem, and the natural world. And But I'm wondering, are you, the poet, the intersection of these worlds between the, the poem and the natural world? Or is there something more that might bring poetry into conversation with the more than human? For me, I think it's all connected. And I don't know if I'm necessarily the intersection or if I'm the portal <laughs> um, or if I'm just simply part of it. And sometimes the natural world is more than me. And sometimes the poem is more than me. And sometimes I'm, I'm living in my life and I'm the center. And sometimes I'm decentering the self. For me, I think it's really important to recognize that it's not just those three things as separate, but those three things as almost the same, like almost a togetherness. They're in community. They're in conversation. And I'm just as much a part of nature as the bird I'm looking out the window at, you know. I'm wondering if the process by which you nurture your relationship to poetry and then the natural world, like you're, you're saying they're one and the same. And so I'm wondering if that nurturing process is the same. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like that, to think of that. I do think that there's a sort of caretaking that takes place once you start to think of yourself in community with everything and instead of how we usually think of sort of us as having dominion over the natural world or over the animal or... And I think that when we start to realize that we are one and the same, it does start to give you a little bit of a a way of taking care of the self that feels in some ways, how do I want to put this? Uh, as if what I'm doing, my own caretaking is supporting my caretaking of the world, right? I was listening to this wonderful Buddhist monk the other day, Lama Rod Owens, and he was saying that the goal is longevity. And I loved that thought because I think it's so often that we think we need to require urgent response to everything and that everything needs to be answered at, at a 10. Every email, every board discussion, you know, whatever it is, we just feel like it has to, it's urgent, it's extreme, it's um, an emergency. And I think that being in the pandemic and sort of living through a real urgent and emergency situation has put many of many of those sort of responses into question. And I like the idea of thinking of longevity when it comes to that, because if we're thinking about that, if we're thinking about the long game, there's a sort of equanimity that comes and a sort of space that comes when we begin to ponder how we want to react, how we want to put ourselves in the world. I'm th I've been thinking about that a lot lately the idea of longevity and, and caretaking of the self and what that means. And sometimes that means saying no, and sometimes it means um, napping. <laughs> I'm a big fan of napping. And, you know, I think that we always talk about how, you know, it's, it's a common saying like, you know, would you say that to a friend, right? Would you, what advice would you give to someone else? And when you really turn that around, you think, well, I would tell them to go eat something, you know, or I would say, hey, everything's going to be okay. And I find myself more and more as I do that, thinking to myself, listen, you're doing the best you can. And I think there's something to that. And I think part of that is recognizing that we're part of the natural world, that we're human, that we're animal, that we're 
that we're connected and in community to life as a whole. And that our minds, <laughs> our brains, that are full of chaos and negative bias, negativity bias and all of that, I think it's important to remember that. It kind of puts it in perspective. While you were talking, I was reminded Timothy Donnelly gave a lecture on breath. And one of the things that he was talking about was this idea of this connection between the natural world being breath and the shared breath and and that and how that resonates in poetry. And that idea resonates with me mm -hmm. just because we are sharing we are sharing breath with every other living thing and, and non-human thing in the world too. Yeah. And I feel like that goes back to also that sense of we feel so overwhelmed by our own worries. And sometimes they really are truly overwhelming. You know, life is hard. It is hard. And I feel like just even recognizing that you're a part of a community where everyone's going through something or, or talking to someone else or having that realization that someone else is also going through it or someone else has gone through it and has found a way through it, has survived it, and it came out on the other side and maybe even, you know, blossomed and became themselves afterwards. I think that kind of memory is really wonderful. And so often we just feel so isolated and whatever we're going through is, is all that matters. And it's nice to have that recognition that, that that's not true, you know, that there's more to us than our minds, more to us than our problems, and that there's also more resources out there than we think. I mean, there are times where you think, what have I done today? It's like I've just sort of like sat and worried and typed and, you know, and like even you and I just being present in this space that we're creating on air, like there's a sort of a level in which that's, that's connection, right? And if we don't notice it, we'll miss it. You could easily have this whole conversation and get off and just be like, okay, yeah, I, I did my task, right? You finished your task, I finished my task. But what, what a poor way of looking at things, right? Yeah I, yeah. I think my soul would be so impoverished if I kept thinking that way. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued as to what it is to live presently in the body, in the breath, in the room, in the space. And I think it's going to take us a little while to become more and more aware of that because so many of us have been living alone or been isolated. Not everyone, of course, um, but I feel like there's a level in which this sort of reentry and kind of things returning is going to be very hard for some people because all we have had is us and our brains. And, you know, our brains aren't always the most beneficial place to, uh, to live. Do you ever tire of having to contextualize or extrapolate your love of poetry? Like what is, what is lost when your working life outside of your writing is spent kind of saturated in that thing you love? And maybe the easier question and feel free to answer either is what is gained? Yeah, I love that. You know, it's funny. Um, I love being able to do, like to align myself with poetry, like to have my whole life that. And I think it's been what I've been working towards forever. And so I don't feel like anything is lost, but I do think there is that recognition of remembering and constantly making sure because, you know, as someone like many, many poets, I've had many multiple careers, have had to make a living many different scattered and wonderful ways, 
you know, including being like a receptionist for King County Water and Land Resources Division, how can I help you? To like waiting tables, to, you know, being the creative services director of Travel and Leisure Magazine and having some marvelous team of designers and marketing folks, you know, uh, working with me. And I think that there's this part of me that is my sort of type A organized uh, self that is like, okay, this is your job now. And so now you must do this and this. And so I think if there's anything that I'm rediscovering is that I really, again, want to be sure that I don't treat it like a job, that really I treat it like a life. And what is the difference between like a career in poetry and a life in poetry? And like, I want a life in poetry. And I think that might just be a little messier you know, it might be a little more, more, I'm just maybe a little more myself on a podcast interview, or I'm just like, I just who I am. And I think it's like a little bit less of the um, armor maybe that I would put on if I was going out to say, you know, marketing a magazine or, or something else. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, it's sort of rediscovering what that means to me and what that may look like you know, and constantly re-envisioning it because I think it's very easy to fall into, well, you know, the societal capitalistic structure of what it is to make a living in this society, in this world. And there's a lot that we have to work in <laughs> when we when we start to talk about pulling those things apart, you know, it's like pulling like the gum out of the hair. It's like, oh, I I, I really, <laughs> you know, there's this part of me that feels like I should be wearing suits and you know and it's like oh no who are you what do you want let's cut it off exactly and so I think there's a big part of me that has to remember to kind of be easy on myself because I think as soon as there's like any kind of financial element to anything it's easy to turn that into what it is to commodify it and I don't want to do that You know, this work is important to me because I really believe in the value and the impact that poetry can have on a single human being. And I know it's had that impact on me. And so I I think it's always just about rediscovering that, remembering that, and uh, staying true to who I am. For context for listeners, um, we are talking generally or broadly about your hosting The Slowdown, this podcast of of poetry. And I'm wondering how you curate the episodes. How do you decide which poets to feature on the show? And even more broadly, maybe, like, what do you look for in a poem? What is the job of these wonderful poems, these good poems, these successful poems? Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a It's really a gift. I mean, I think there's days where I think, oh, you know what? I have, you know, kind of a free afternoon. I'm going to just read poems today. You know, sometimes I have a big spreadsheet of all of these different um, wonderful journals. And um, if you listen to The Slowdown, you'll know that many of the people that we uh, share the poems of, many of the poets that we feature are not um, necessarily, you know, hugely famous literary stars. A lot of them are just getting their start. Um, Some of them, of course, are, are more established. But I like that mix, you know, I really like that mix of of new voices and established voices. So for me, it's really just about finding poems that speak to me. And Mm -hmm. I also am very aware that I do have an aesthetic. 
but I'll admit that very early on, I have always been accused of being the sort of poet that likes all poems. And I do. I really, I can make an argument for almost any poem. You can hand me something <laughs> and, and be like, isn't this terrible? And I'm like, well, let's just see if I can redeem it for you. You know, <laughs> I, I am that person. And so uh, I think in some ways it's kind of, I could pick many poems and they could be very different stylistically, tonally, craft-wise, content-wise. And to me, that really sort of is the delight of doing the show is that you have that ability because it's, you know, every weekday. So that's a part of it. I also, um, when I first started, I worked with the wonderful producer, Jennifer Lai, and now I'm working with the wonderful producer, Micah Kilbon. And they also both will find poems and, and they'll put them in a folder for me to look at. And so, you know, we'll, we'll do it together, which is also nice. And sometimes they'll find poems and so it's a, it's a team effort, you know, like, as you know, hosting a podcast, you don't do it alone. There are so many people that are looking out for you and making sure that uh, you stay, you know, aligned with what that podcast is really supposed to be about. So yeah, that's, it's a real joy picking the poems and, um, and talking about them. We can't undo the past. We have ourselves imparted humongous changes in our atmosphere. We can't wish away the consequences. The climate has a say, and the climate is telling us we're not doing enough. But we can change what happens next. This is the decisive decade in the history of humankind. Listen to Time to 1.5, the new season of Threshold. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Ada, what is revealed to you in the color yellow? What is your attraction to it? Hmm... I'm so glad you brought up yellow because I at one point was looking at the book and I thought, oh no, there's just yellow all over this. <laughs> and I realized that that yellow for me is that sort of brightness, that kind of, for me, it's that first sign of of spring here in Kentucky. It's when everything begins. And it's usually actually the first sign of spring, even in California. I'm thinking of the mustard that starts to bloom in February in between all the vineyards as a cover crop. And so yellow for me is sort of that first sign of life. It's the first blooming. It's the first coming back. Well, let's dive into one of these poems that features yellow. Will you read Forsythia for us? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Thank you. Forsythia. At the cabin in Snug Hollow near McSwain Branch Creek, just spring, all the animals are out and my beloved and I are lying in bed in a soft silence. We are talking about how we carry so many people with us wherever we go, how even when simply living, these unearned moments are a tribute to the dead. We are both expecting to hear an owl as the night deepens. All afternoon from the porch, we watched an eastern towhee furiously build her nest in the untamed forsythia, with its yellow spilling out into the horizon. I told him that the way I remember the name Forsythia is that when my stepmother, Cynthia, was dying that last week, she said, lucidly but mysteriously, more yellow. And I thought, yes, more yellow, and nodded because I agreed. Of course, more yellow. And so now, in my head, when I see that yellow tangle, I say, for Cynthia, for Cynthia, 
Forsythia. Forsythia. More yellow. It is night now, and the owl never comes. Only more of night, and what repeats in the night. Your book will be released right after Mother's Day this year, and your mother and your stepmother, obviously, whom you just read about, wrote about, and read about, and motherhood are such important themes and subjects in in all the poetry of yours that I've read. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, how are you like your mother, Ada? How are you like your stepmother? Yeah, those are so. That's so great. You know, my mother is a painter, and she has done the cover of all six of my books, and which is a, this sort of most amazing collaboration that you could ask for. And so, I think in so many ways, when I'm like my mother, I'm um, I'm the observer, I'm the watcher, enough so that sometimes, you know, when I go home she stares at me from across the kitchen table and I have to be like, mom, stop staring at me. (laughs) But I think, you know, she's such a watcher and, you know, she can stare out the window forever. And so can I. Um, (laughs) So I think that's, but her, the way she responds to that looking is with images. And the way I respond to that looking is with words. And my stepmother, Cynthia, who passed away in February of 2010, I think that she, what she has given me was really a sort of a fierceness in that what it is to like deeply believe in pleasure. And I think that, you know, she was diagnosed with colon cancer six years prior to her death. And so in those six years, what it was to like double down on life, right? Like to do the thing that brings you the most delight. And she was always an intense personality, a wonderful personality, full of, you know, sense of humor, but also very strict in a lot of ways. And um, I think watching someone do that for six years to be like, hey, this is life. This is what I got really changed me and shifted me. And I owe her so much for that. You know, she was given six months to live and she lived for six. And I think partly that six years was because she was she was getting pleasure, you know, that she was finding the delight. And so I think that's a, one of the lessons, one of the many lessons, there's of course more, but that I've taken from her that she gifted me. I'm hoping you might want to read another poem. I initially wanted you to read Privacy, which you mm. definitely still can, but I also love the idea of you reading... Um, is it sports? Yeah. I, I, we're talking about, you know, writing about family members. Sports yeah. might be a, a good one to follow up with. I love that. This is a poem that I wrote that I thought was about sports. And of course, that it just changed into what it was truly about. It revealed itself to me as poems do. They're always much wiser than us, the poet, uh, the poets, right? We, we don't really know much, but the poems seem to know something. And also, I just wanted to add that I had a wonderful editor, the friend, my friend Jericho Brown, helped me sort of bring this poem into its completion. Sports. I've seen my fair share of baseball games, eaten smothered hot dogs in Kansas City and carne asada burritos in San Francisco in the sunny stands on a day free of fog. 
I've sat in a bar for hours watching basketball and baseball and the Super Bowl, and I've even high-fived and clinked my almost empty drink with a stranger because it felt good to go through something together, even though we hadn't been through anything but the drama of a game, its players. If I'm honest, what I love, why I love, The sounds of the game, even when I'm not interested, half-listening, is one thing. When my father and my stepfather had to be in the same room or had to drop my brother and me off during one weekly move from one house to another, they, for a brief moment, would stand together in the doorway or on the gravel driveway, and it felt like what true terror should feel like. Two men who were so different you could barely see their shadows attached in the same way. And just when I thought I couldn't watch the pause lengthen between them, they'd talk about the playoffs or the finals or whatever team was doing whatever thing required that season. And sometimes they'd even shrug or make a motion that felt like two people who weren't opposites after all. Once I sat in the car and waited for one of them to take me away, and from the back seat, I swear, they looked like they were on the same team. United against a common enemy had been fighting all this time on the same side. Your being a child of divorce is in this poem and in this book broadly. If we have to talk about this poem, and we definitely don't, but what would you want to talk about? What would you want listeners to know about that poem? Yeah, I think sometimes you even said it, like being a child of divorce, it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? It sounds like this sort of really dramatic thing. And I mean, so many people have multiple households and joint families and chosen families and are adopted or have like all of these different family narratives. And I think during the pandemic, I really started to think about what it was to shake off the old narratives and old tropes of what was a traditional family. I think it sort of does a disservice sometimes to our actual families, to not embrace the mess and to not embrace that like, yeah, it was a little different than so-and-so's family, but it was ours and there was a lot of wonder and a lot of beauty in it. And what it was to also remember that there was all of these people doing the best that they could. And I feel like so often we get in this, I know this for myself, I'll say this, I keep saying we, and I'm I'm distrusting the we here. Um, The I, (laughs) I know that when I first started writing poems, like I wanted to write like angry poems, and I was like, I had to go from one house to another, and it was hard, and all of these things were about me, and my tragedy, (laughs) you know, and not that those weren't all valid feelings. But I think as you age, there's a certain amount of like, yeah, but like I was loved in both of those places. Like I had so much access to support. And um, I guess I just want to re-envision what family can look like and to reinvigorate that conversation as celebratory Because I think so often we get caught up in what the world tells us, you know, what uh, religion tells us, all of these things, and, and none of it makes sense. What makes sense is your experience, your individual experience. 
And I wanted to honor that. And I wanted to honor it in not just a generous way, but in a true way, in a way that I really felt. Because I think sometimes we lean into the hurt when we write poems because that seems to give us maybe a little bit more of power. And um, I wasn't interested in power. I was interested in offering something. Ada, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Peter Hoke and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our recording engineer is Tom Barich. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.